before. Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? It's a new year. I've forgotten I have to turn this switch on. I'll get there one day. I was chatting just before Christmas to a friend of mine from this church who shall remain nameless, who was confessing really that he'd had a massive wake-up call about how he was following Jesus. He had um, invited a colleague of his to come to one of our carol services, a colleague that he'd worked with for 15 years. And the first thing that this colleague said to him was, I didn't realize you were a Christian. He did actually come to the carol service, and he loved it. So well done for inviting him. But my friend was saying, how can it be that I've worked with this guy for 15 years and nothing about what I've said or how I've lived or how I've worked has given him any indication that I'm a follower of Jesus? We're starting a new teaching series uh, this morning called Practicing the Way of Jesus. Actually, what you'll find is it's the first part of what will be a rolling series. I reckon I've got a year's worth of material, and I've been working on it for about a year. But given that we've just spent a year doing something called the Year of Biblical Literacy, I thought the last thing you needed was a year on spiritual formation. So we'll drip feed it, okay, throughout the next wee while. But the motivation is principally twofold. Number one, it's one of our strategic priorities as a church to create a discipleship culture to help one another better follow Jesus. And therefore, it needs to always be on the radar. But also because, if I'm honest, I have that kind of conversation quite a lot with people. And actually, I have all sorts of other conversations that, on reflection, cause me some concern. People say to me that uh, they're a follower of Jesus, but when they talk about their life, and I listen to them talk about uh, how they find life and the priorities they make and the decisions they make and how it's going, I often hear stories of busyness, Anxiety, stress, uh, worrying about children who've not followed in the faith. People often say to me, I'm really sorry I've not been at church on Sunday for a while. I have one or two responses. One is, it's okay. It's not all about coming to church on a Sunday. The other one, if I'm in a not such a good mood, is, yeah, I know. That's <laughs> <laughs> some version of that. It's not about going to church. It's about being the church. 
And it's about being the church, as we talked about last term, because we are God's people, and that's part of our identity. And so to be family together and to gather with one another is actually an imperative for the Christian. It's not an optional extra. But the reality is I speak to lots of people who say, I can't really find time for church. I've not been to small group for months because I just haven't got time. And I want to say to them, wake up. What's more important than following Jesus in community? How can anything be more important than that? And you know, my heart is that we would be demonstrably different to the people all around us in such a way that they'd look and they'd see and they'd wonder and they'd ask. And we don't get there on our own. It's a community effort, and as we'll see, it's a lifestyle that we have to continually work at. And if I'm honest, which I like to do from time to time, even as a shy, retiring introvert, really, um, I'm not always any different either. (laughs) So we're in this together. I'm going to say right from the start that a lot of the material you're going to hear over the next few weeks um, is um, not stolen because my friend gave it to me, but someone I've got to know over the last year called John Mark Homer, a guy out in America who's done a lot of thinking about this, and he's happily giving away his material to people. So, so not all of this is my brilliant insights and winsome thoughts. It's, uh, a lot of it's his, but you know, some of it's me. Uh, and, and what I want us to do is really ask again, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And how are we actually going to work that out? You know, we, we often say, don't we, that uh, we're followers of Jesus. We're Christians. And if I was to ask you, tell me about Jesus, you'd tell me things like, well, he's the son of God. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the King, who's come in glory and will come again in glory. He's the one through whom which we are saved and return to the Father, etc., etc., But if we were first century Jews, and we were in synagogue right now, not church, one Sabbath morning, and Jesus rocked up, the category we'd use to understand him and make sense of him would be rabbi, which is literally translated teacher. A rabbi was one who would travel from town to town with their yoke, their interpretation of Torah, what we have as the first five books of the Bible. This is what it means to follow God, to be the people of God. This is how I make sense of it. This is my teaching. And people would take up the yoke of their rabbi. So he referenced Jesus, of course, who says that my yoke is easy. It's not simple, you know, as in dead easy. It's just... Sorry, it's not easy as in it's dead easy. It's easy as in simple. It's still quite hard, actually, but it's beautifully simple. Jesus was a brilliant young rabbi from the northern part of Israel. And of the 90 times that Jesus talks to somebody in the Gospels, 60 of those times, so two-thirds, he's called rabbi. Just as an aside, every time I was typing rabbi on Microsoft Word, it auto-corrected to rabbit. So it took me about 10 minutes longer to prepare than it should have done. Now grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. These verses are coming up on the screen. Uh, Mark chapter 1. 
I'm just going to try to help, help you see something real quick. So Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Um, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Verse 17, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed them. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him, Jesus. Okay, turn over a couple of uh, verses. Chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, we see the same thing again. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Turn over again, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles. Notice this, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And then finally, Mark chapter 8, which we've already heard, which hopefully now makes a bit more sense. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, that's better translated, if anyone wants to follow me, then you must deny yourself. So he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's a cost. But constantly, do you see the pattern? Jesus is inviting people to follow him. Now, um, it's literally the word disciple. And the word disciple in the Hebrew, I think my slides are in the wrong order, is the word talmudim. Talmudim. It's to be a disciple. It is uh, the word talmudim. That's the word that Jesus is using here. It's also perhaps translated quite well as follower. Not in the sense of I've got 2,000 and whatever it is followers on Twitter. Whatever. Uh, or student, and, and not as in I'm a first year at Worcester Uni, but as in I'm a student of life. Okay, actually, I think the best word in English is the word apprentice. So let's work with that, okay, for the next few weeks. Jesus is inviting people to become his apprentice. To follow a rabbi was to do an apprenticeship with him. Now, this kind of discipleship wasn't invented by Jesus. Lots of rabbis before him had done this. And actually, it wasn't even invented by rabbis. Plato began it with his disciple Socrates, or Socrates, if you get your philosophy from Bill and Ted's Most Excellent Adventure. If you've no idea what film I'm referring to, go watch it. You'll thank me. (laughs) This was part and parcel of the first century world. This is normal. It should be normal in the 21st century church. But it's not for all sorts of reasons, which we can talk about another time. But it's key to spiritual formation. If you want to become newly, truly, fully, gloriously human, if you want to be saved from stuff and saved for that which God has saved you and become that which he made you to be, then you need to be a follower of Jesus in this sense. You need to become an apprentice of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, To understand this, let me nerd out on you just for a few minutes. Is that all right? 
Hello? <laughs> yeah. You don't, yeah, you don't have a choice. So anyway, here we go. So back in the day, we are told there were three schools or three houses of learning for Jewish kids uh, at the time of Jesus. And here's a little diagram to help you understand it. For um, basically six to 12-year-olds, uh, you went to Bet Sefer, that was known as the House of Book, the book, where you would read and write and learn maths, but potentially, oh, sorry, primarily, you would memorize the Torah. That's the first five books in this Bible. You'd memorize it. Now, when you were reading through the Year of Biblical History reading plan, who got to Deuteronomy and nearly died? Like, it took us eight months just to read the Old Testament. They spent their life learning the first five books. And you got to age 12, and you, most kids stopped at this point. Girls were married off by 13, 14. So women, I know there's a long way still to go in terms of equality, but it's better than it was. And boys, unless you were bright, you went back and worked with your dad. And you did what your dad did, whether you liked it or not. Uh, the brighter kids went on to Bet Talmud for another couple of years. That's known as the House of Learning. And that was essentially full-time education. You would learn from a, a full-time paid rabbi where, guess what you did? You memorized the rest of the Old Testament. Woo! Uh, I'd be the kind of kid that was like, can I go and be a carpenter? That sounds so dull. Except actually, it was a huge privilege. And at the end of that discipleship period, the rabbi would interrogate you and test you to see whether you've got what it takes to go to the next level, which is Bet Midrash, House of Study. And if you were able to dialogue with the scriptures, if you were able to debate with your rabbi and understand his yoke, but also perhaps begin to show signs of your own yoke emerging, your own teaching, then actually you would be invited, if you were the best of the best of the best only, into Bet Midrash. And what the rabbi would say to you is, come, follow me. I want you, because you're the best of the best of the best, I want you to come and join with me, and now we're going to do the proper apprenticeship. And notice on the screen, from age 14 through to 30, Jesus was a rabbi who was trained. At what age did he start his public ministry? And at the end of Bet Midrash, the disciples of the rabbi would eventually be told, you've got it. 16 years, 15, 16 years later, off you go. Now you go have a crack at it. You now go and find your own disciples. And you now go and do the same thing again. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so that's the context to Jesus the rabbi going around and asking all sorts of people, come follow me. Were they the best of the best of the best? No, they're fishermen. They, they left school at 12. They didn't have what it takes to get on to the Bet Talmud program, never mind Bet Midrash. He's standing before the crowds, the poor, the, the destitute, the, the unloved, and he says to any of you, any of you who wants to come after me, follow me. And they're scratching their heads, some of them, going, but... But others saw that something new was being offered here. And so, of course, they drop their nets. Of course, they leave their family. Of course, they follow him because a rabbi believes he knew. And his yoke, his teaching is so beautiful. It's so different. It tastes and speaks 
of this kingdom that we've heard about, that we've memorized all the scriptures about. We've just not experienced it. Maybe, maybe he is the one that everyone said would come. And so why would you not follow him? Now, you had three goals as an apprentice. Uh, To be with your rabbi, number one. So notice Mark chapter 3, verse 14, that they might be with him. He he asked them to follow him so that they might be with him, just to be with him. This was 24-7 discipleship. It wasn't a course for eight weeks every time. This was you lived with them, you ate with them, you slept with them, you traveled with them, you did everything with them. There was this blessing that was a, a kind of uh, spoken out over people as a kind of um, a way of saying, you know, this is what we would want for you. And it goes like this. May you, some of you have heard this before, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you have been so close to someone, this rabbi, that as you've traveled the dirt tracks of your world, following them around, learning from them, doing what they did, that by the end of the day, you're literally, because you've been behind them, you're covered in their dust, right? That was the blessing. Like, that was a good thing. That was the goal. The second objective was having been around them is to, is to become like the rabbi, because it's caught, ultimately, not taught. So if you watch kids, they imitate their parents. We watch and observe as kids, and we, and we become like that which is around us. Actually, that doesn't change as adults. So keep good company. <laughs> now, Jesus talks about fishes of men, doesn't he, in one of those passages we read. Now, it'd be tempting to think that's a sort of naff, cheesy pun. It would make a great Christian bumper sticker. You know, you're fishermen, I make you fishers of men. <laughs> See what I did there, guys? That's actually not what's going on here. Jesus has a much better sense of humor than that. Uh, it's actually really funny, but it gets lost in translation. Fishers of men was a well-known idiom for a great teacher, like a rock star rabbi. And he's saying, you, you come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you the kind of rabbis that everyone's going to be like, oh my goodness, the kind of teachers that are going to change the world. I'm the great teacher, and if you hang out with me, I'll show you how to do it. Make you like me. And we live in an age, don't we, quite different to this. If you spend any time with teenagers, young adults, students like I do, you'll know that they live in a culture that says, be true to who you are. You're a snowflake, unique and fragile. And actually, there's no one like you. And that's true, but actually, we're not wired to be this kind of individual, unique thing that does life on our own. We're we're invited into and called to be family. And in the day of Jesus, it wasn't like that at all. The aim was to become a carbon copy of your rabbi. They literally copied everything. Now, you can critique that. But the idea was that you would take on the character and integrity of someone who's been around God. And finally, um, the goal number three would be to do what your rabbi does. So notice in Mark chapter 3, the goal at the end is that he would send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. That is shorthand, by the way, for living out the kingdom. It's more than just those two things, just to relax you. But the point of apprenticeship was that at the end of the day, your rabbi would look at you and say, go make disciples. What does Jesus say? 
just before he returns to heaven to his disciples. Go and make disciples. They've done three years. Not 15. They've done three years of apprenticeship. They can't read or write. They've not done all of the other stuff. But he's sufficiently confident that they have got what it takes to carry on what he started. That he breathes upon them. He commissions them. You and I are the same. And he says, now go and make disciples. Get on with it. Go do what I've been doing. You're ready to go do it. Do you feel ready? Are you even here? (laughs) Do you feel ready? Do you feel equipped? No. But that's what the Holy Spirit came for, to equip and to empower us, to bring these two things together. And so actually, yes, we can go do it in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. Okay, are you with me so far? Who's enjoying it? Oh, good, seven or eight of you, marvellous. And the rest of you are just processing, I'm sure. Okay, flip this round to our context. What does this mean now for 21st century discipleship? I think it means to order your life around the exact same three goals. I think you and I are called to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. That's discipleship. That's how you become a follower of Jesus in the fullest, most mature sense. Those are the three things that must be at the centre of our lives. We look at them briefly. I could do a whole session on each one of these, okay? So we're racing through some material. Forgive me for that. But number one, being with Jesus. This is the priority. The other two flow from this one, okay? Now, we are really good in charismatic evangelical churches at doing the other two, but not doing the first, We know we should be with him. We know we should have our, whatever you call it, quiet times or devotion times. We know we should do silence and solitude and fasting and resting and all of that. We're going to get there. But actually, we're not very good at it. We're quite good at doing courses and consuming books and conferences and podcasts to help us become more like him. Although in reality, all that means is we know more about him. Because you can only become like that which you hang out with. And we're very good at doing the stuff he did just not necessarily in the way that he did it (laughs) because we've not learnt it from him this is our priority though John Mark Comer, my friend, says this it's only possible through a constant by being in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit that's how you do it that's how Jesus intended it for us because that's how He did it, which is why he says, don't go and start anything until the promised gift of the Spirit has come, Pentecost. Only then do you go, because you can't do it on your own. It's power, but it's also presence. This is the baseline for all living in the kingdom of God. So you and I, if we don't carve out time, morning, day, and night, every day of every week, of every month, of every year, we will not be with him sufficiently to be able to become like him and learn to do what he did. So Jesus gave us the most beautiful picture of this in John 15, which if we had more time, we'd dive into, and we'll come back to another time. The vine and the branches. It's really simple, he says. You remain in me, and I'll remain in you. You stay rooted to me. Paul says in Ephesians 3, be rooted and established in love, and I will bear fruit through you. We've talked about this before, haven't we? Faithfulness is our responsibility. Fruitfulness is the the byproduct of faithfulness. Remain in me. A better word is abide. 
Abide in me. Learn how to live in my presence, in the truth of who you are, in Christ, is Paul's shorthand for this. So Dallas Willard, who is the master on this, he died a couple of years ago, he says this, I don't know whether you can see it on the screen because of the sunlight, but here's what he says. The first and most basic thing we can do and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. Oh, he has such a way of putting it. But these are habits, not the laws of gravity, he says, and they can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. Note this. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. His point is that living in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit takes practice. Hence, practicing the way of Jesus. So John Mark Comer has this brilliant way of explaining it. He says it's essentially about learning to be in two places at the same time. At your desk, clearing your emails, and in the presence of the Father the kitchen sink scrubbing the pots and pans and in the presence of the father in traffic trying to get over the bridge wondering why there's not a second bridge and in the presence of the father feeding your newborn in the middle of the night when your dog tired and in the presence of the father that's what abiding is because we can't spend all day just quietly in our little corner of the safest part of our house with some nice worship music on, a candle, going, Jesus, nothing would ever happen. It's from that place that we learn to abide, which is why rhythms of prayer and all that stuff, which we're going to look at, are so important. Okay, number two, becoming like Jesus. Out of this place of abiding, the goal is to become like Jesus. Now, it's not literally to sort of become like him as in a carbon copy he changes the rules slightly conversation for another time it's to become gloriously truly fully human a christ-like version of you one without sin one operating in the power and the presence of the spirit one who knows their gifts and calling one who loves and serves one who lives out the grace and generosity of god it's what in the olden days used to be called sanctification which sounds quite painful it's better probably called spiritual formation. That's the word I prefer. This is about spiritual formation, becoming who you really are in God. Now, Dallas Willard, again, because basically he says it better than anyone else. Here's what he says. This is the best definition I've ever come across of spiritual formation. Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by such character traits as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Increasingly being possessed and permeated 
by the character traits of Jesus. That's what spiritual formation is. So here's the rub. We're all disciples of something. We're all disciples of someone. Who are you following? Do you take your inspiration from Jesus of Nazareth or from some famous celebrity that you follow on Instagram? Are you more shaped and formed by Jesus or your mother? If it's the latter, we can help you. (laughs) The question is not, am I being formed? But by what and into what am I being formed? What's the trajectory of your character arc? Who are you becoming? Are you on track? to more and more fully express the nature of God through your personality, your gender, your context, your gifts, your passions, or or not. You know, I, I want to become like Jesus from the inside out. I want people to be around me and go, oh, it was like being around Jesus. Not because I want you all to be like, holy vicar, but because I think that's what it is to be redeemed and made new. I don't just want behavior modification. I don't want a spiritual straitjacket. So I learn how to behave properly, but everything inside of me is to add a kilt with that, which is often what we do if we miss the first of those three things, right? We do the right things, but we haven't really changed on the inside. Now, here's the rub. It takes practice. It takes practice. You don't learn it instantly. You have to learn it. It's an apprenticeship. We, we actually have to relearn how to be human. Kids naturally do it in all sorts of ways, and then they unlearn it because of that's a whole other conversation as well. It takes practice, and it, it, so it requires time, but it also requires community. Because guess what? You can't do it on your own, which is why there's this thing called the church. And as much as it might do your head in, it's your family. Get over it. Learn to love it make yourself part of it, you will be be someone who both blesses and is blessed by it if you do. Third, and we'll say less about this because I'm running out of time, do what Jesus did. That's the third aim of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Now this is tricky for us because yes, he was a rabbi, but he was also the son of God. And so some of the things he did, we can't do. But we can imitate him. We can emulate him in spirit and truth. We can lay down our life for the sake of other people, even if we don't literally hang on a cross, okay? So let's not give ourselves too many get-out-of-jail-for-free cards. This is a tough call, all right? The goal of someone following Jesus, it should include, yes, becoming like, being with him, becoming like him, but also being someone who's more and more able to minister on behalf of the kingdom of God. So, back to John Mark Homer, who's made a list, he says, of the ten things he sees Jesus doing throughout the Gospels. Uh, Here's a little checklist. How are you doing? Preaching the Gospel. All sorts of ways to do that. Teaching the way. That's what I'm doing now. Healing the sick. Casting out demons. Eating and drinking with people far from God. I like that one. Standing up against political and religious corruption. Doing justice. Peacemaking. Praying. Prophesying. Now, the body of Christ means, of course, that we're not all going to do all of those equally. But actually, the more you hang out with Jesus, the more you'll find yourself able to do, or at least engage with those, all in some way or another. Partly because you might be around someone who does those things, one of the two of those things, in a particularly wonderful way. Okay, the goal, in other words, is not to just be around Jesus and learn from him so you can talk about him and you can kind of copy him. 
It's so that actually it becomes innate in you to be someone who lives from the presence of God into the world in such a way that Worcester becomes more like the kingdom of God than it is already. That's mission and evangelism right there. Okay, you tracking? I've only got nine more pages. <laughs> it's not true. Don't worry, nearly there. So discipleship, following Jesus, I want to suggest as we start this series, is a life built around these three goals. Jesus, following Jesus, cannot be a hobby. It cannot be the last thing that goes in your diary. It cannot be something you fit in around your other commitments. Not if you want to become that which you were saved for. Not if you want to become a mature, fully-fledged child of God who makes a difference in the world, who experiences life as God intended. You can't do it any other way, which is why Jesus demands you all. He gave all so that you can have it all, but it requires us giving it back to him. It's really not rocket science. You cannot access the life on offer unless you make it your primary focus. John Mark Homer again, sorry to quote him, but he's so good on this. He says, following Jesus makes the most sense when it's the whole point of your life. If it's not the whole point of your life, guess what? It will just be disappointing, frustrating, and exhausting. It doesn't mean giving up your job. It doesn't mean you suddenly go and become a monk or a vicar, although it might mean that. It means that your focus is your apprenticeship to Jesus, and everything about you is part of that journey. So quickly, back to Mark 8, just to notice a couple of things, and then we'll finish. The invitation, I already said this, I want to reiterate it, is to become an apprentice. Verse 34, come after me, follow me. He's not saying, come and join my club, become a Christian, learn the rules, carry on the institution. He's saying, come and learn how to be human with me. Come and work with me as I join with God in the renewal of all things, to use our language. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Did you know that? And each time it's used, it's used negatively. The word disciple, apprentice, is used, in contrast, 268 times. More than any other moniker for what it is to be a son or daughter of God. The one that follows after that is family. So apprentice and then family. They're the two things that should define your Christian spirituality. And notice, I've already said this, but I'm reiterating it. Verse 35, chapter 8. It's for whoever wants to follow him. Whoever. Jesus changes the rules. It's not about us showing the rabbi that we've got what it takes. It's us realizing the rabbi's already done it, and he frees us up to become like him. All we have to do is spend time with him. Because when we spend time with him, we'll become like him. And when we become like him, we'll do the things that he did. Because that's what it is to be human. We will be restored and made new. And it will become natural and innate for us. And so here, one more time, Dallas Willard. The greatest issue facing the world today, I've used this before, using it again, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession, as in I profess this, or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. You can call yourself a Christian, he would say, but not be a follower of Jesus. 
which is why Jesus says, some of you will get to heaven and I'll say, get away from me, I didn't know you. Can you think of anything worse than spending your entire life doing the Christian thing, but not really following Jesus, being with him, becoming like him, doing what he did, and getting to the end and him going, um, sorry, have we, have we met? Now he's provoking, he's using language there to provoke us. Grace abounds, but flip it around. Why would you not want this? Like, why would you just do Christianity? It's hard, it's boring on its own. Why would you not want to become a disciple? If we had time, I'd show you how the beginning and the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this word practice. Whoever practices this will become. Whoever practices will find. Practice, practice, practice. It's woven through Jesus' teaching. The way of following Jesus, the way of life in Christ, takes practice. Practice doesn't just mean trying really, really hard. Again and again and again, like good works. Just keep going, have another crack, good effort. It's not about trying, it's about training. Apprenticeship is a training, isn't it? I met someone the other day... He came around to fix our boiler with um, the, the guy that normally does it, and he's an apprentice. The idea is that he will eventually know how to fix boilers on his own. He's learned, he's being trained. He's not coming and having a crack at, well, I think it, I'll try. Like, I've never really seen this boiler before. I'll have a, oh, maybe that'll work. Like, he's been taught. And that's what discipleship is. It's training, not trying. Another analogy would be, anyone ever run a marathon for the first time? Where's Paul Barton? He's in my mind. Started running. You don't just decide you're going to do the Worcester 10K, turn up, have a crack at it, right? I'll just try. I'll be all right. You can do that. You're more likely to die. (laughs) Um, You learn. You train. You do a couple of miles, and then you do three, and then you do four, and you find people to help you, and you get some good shoes, and you get a coach or a friend to do it with you, whatever. It's the same principle. So here's what I want you to understand as we land. Okay. You and I are invited by Jesus to follow him. He's saying to you, again, at the beginning of 2018, will you follow me? Will you come and be an apprentice? Actually, it's a lifelong apprenticeship. I love that we've got a church here with people who are older than me, should we put it like that, who are still following Jesus with everything they've got. I love that. I want to be like that when I'm their age. Here's what William Paulsell says. He's another writer on this, and we'll finish with this. It is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our own lives. But there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. It's brilliant. We have got to learn the spiritual practices. What some people call the spiritual disciplines. I don't like that language because I think it's unhelpful. Practices is much better. We practice this stuff. And the spiritual practices, things like silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, Sabbath, keeping, reading the Bible, and so on, they help us do it. They're the tools, they're the practices, the things that we learn how to do so that we can abide so that we can apprentice ourselves to Jesus. 
It's a means to an end. To live the way of Jesus takes practice, it takes time, it requires community. We need to learn together how to do it. So over the next few weeks and then later in the year and through other things, we're going to try together to teach uh, one another some of these practices. We're beginning next week by looking at the practice of keeping Sabbath. Paul is going to help me with that. He'll be also sharing something about his sabbatical, which comes from the same root word. But resting building in a pattern of rest. We're going to look at silence and solitude. Paul Swan's going to help us with that. We're going to look later in the year at fasting. I love that. Not. Uh, We're going to talk about all of these things. And we're going to write material up for small groups to follow, as we always do, so that in community you can learn this stuff. But today I really am just simply saying, are, are you up for following Jesus in 2018? Like becoming an apprentice of Jesus. Not a churchgoer, not a Christian, but someone who is demonstrably different because they've been around Jesus and they've become like him. And as a result, they naturally do the things that he did and their world changes as a result. If you're up for that, would you like to stand? I'm going to pray for us as we finish. If you're comfortable with this, I'd love you just to perhaps close your eyes and and open your hands as a sign to God that, yeah, here I am, and I can't do it without your spirit. No one can. Not even Jesus could do it without the spirit of God. And perhaps just in the quiet of your hearts, as you ask the spirit to minister to you, in some way or another, just communicate your heart to God. What do you need to say? Some, some of you, if you're honest, it's been a while since you've been around him. You might need to reintroduce yourself for your sake. He knows who you are. So it, it might be that your heart's like fizzing with potential and excitement and you're like, come on, God. It might be that you've got disappointment and hurt and pain that trips you up and gets in the way. Almost certainly for most of us, there'll be some practical reality checks that we need to deal with, our diaries, our ways of life. Most of us are overcommitted, undisciplined. Just before Jesus finished commissioning those disciples to go and make more disciples, he breathed on them. My peace I give you. It's what Brother Lawrence called practicing the presence of God. What John Mark calls being in two places at the same time. Peace in the midst of work and children and mortgages and tidying up and aging family and difficult relationships and 
concerns and fears and health issues. Living in and from the presence of God. Because by the Spirit, we get rooted and established there. So God, would you do that now by your Spirit? Breathe upon us your peace. Beginning of this year, 